This sermon is brought to you by Shofar Christian Church. We hope that you will be blessed by this message. Our audio and video sermons are also available on Shofar TV to download and share. Great, good to see all of you. Just before a trip, I was packing and then my daughter, who was very young, came to the door. And so she stuck out two fingers at me. And I thought that maybe she hurt it. So I went to her and I said, oh, don't worry, it's okay, daddy will kiss it. And I put it into my mouth and then I pretended like I would eat it. And, uh, you know, you play with children, right? And then I went back to packing. And she was still standing there. So I looked at her and I asked, what's wrong? And she gave me this really sad, devastated look. Daddy, what happened to my boogers? Okay, that didn't really happen. It didn't happen, thank God, right? But see what a powerful story does to all of us. It captivates us, doesn't it? Do you know that you live in a story today? <laughs> Do you know that you live in a story today? Right? And there is this meta-narrative. There is this biblical big story that we are a part of. My, my, my two daughters and I have watched every single episode in the Marvel Universe every single movie, okay, 22 of them, I think, or 21, 21 or 22, every single one, we've watched all of them, sorry, pastor. Um, <laughs> and it's interesting when you see the meta-narrative, the arc of the story and where it's going, what's going to happen next and how it all interconnects. We live in that kind of a story. It's called the biblical meta-narrative. So you want to, you want to sound smart, you say meta-narrative, okay? Um, but essentially, it comes down to four big words, creation, fall, re redemption, and restoration, okay? So everybody repeat after me. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And so when we tell this story, there are essentially six parts to it, or six different you know, aspects that you can share. Some people would use they will call it the six windows, you know, you can even create an acrostic using G-O-S-P-E-L. But essentially, here it's what it is. Genesis 1 and 2 tells us that God created us for relationship. Genesis 3 says that we sin, and therefore we were separated from Him. Genesis 4, all the way to Malachi 4, speaks about how man tries to earn their way into salvation, and it didn't work. Matthew, Mark, Luke teaches us that Jesus came to pay for our sins by dying for, on the cross and raising again from the dead. Acts, no, John, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, teaches us that all we need to do is to believe, okay? And we will be saved. And then Acts all the way to Revelation 22 speaks about the journey we have, participating with Him in His mission today, and for all eternity. So that's the meta-narrative. That's the story. That's the gospel. That's what you want to help. That's why you study the Bible, to help you understand where you and I are located in this big story. Got it? So this is important, okay? And, and when people say things like, oh, young people of this generation, you know, and that oh, every generation is the same. Every young generation is the same. People always say this, 
There is biblical illiteracy. There is biblical poverty. Essentially, it's because people don't understand the meta-narrative that we belong to. So, Jesus is the protagonist. Jesus is the main actor, the main character in this story, right? Okay? So, not you. Tell your neighbor, not you. And not me. <laughs> All right? Jesus is the main actor. Right? Good. Now, just for interest's sake, if Jesus is the main actor, there seems to be a lot of extras, right, in this movie. <laughs> Do you know which movie contained the most extras in history? In the Guinness Book of Records, there is one movie that contains the most extras. Do you know which movie and what number? Don't Google. Ben-Hur, yeah. It's in the top 10, actually, Ben-Hur. Ten Commandments also in the top 10, but you know which one? It's Gandhi, 1982. 300,000 extras for their funeral scene. 300,000, okay? 96,000 of them were actually contracted. The rest, they just said, come, 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 and it's easy in India, right? There are people everywhere. <laughs> so, so, but the point is, the point is, Jesus is the main actor, but he's got a lot of extras. Who are those extras? You and I. So whilst the world does not revolve around you and I, it revolves around Jesus and his mission, he nonetheless gave us authority. Authority to do what? Trample on snakes, okay? But make disciples is the one I'm looking for, okay? So make disciples is the, the mission he gave us. Uh, uh, you know, the mission is much broader than making disciples. It's to see the kingdom of God here on earth you know, to see the kingdom of God come, but, but making disciples would be a primary vehicle, a, a vehicle in seeing God's kingdom come, right? So we have authority. So Jesus is the main actor. We are his extras. But we are very important extras because he does not have a second plan for the redemption of mankind, right? Okay? Okay so far? So if he does not have a backup plan and we are his plan under God, okay, under his authority, so we've got responsibility, correct? So whose responsibility? The guys who are paid as pastors in this church? The responsibility lies with all of us, his extras. So if your response has been, this is not for me, you know, this is the domain of people who are paid or are Christian ministers or vocational Christian ministry, um, you know, implementers, I want to push back on that a little bit. Well, I'm going to push back really hard on that tonight, okay? <laughs> so let's go to Genesis 1. All of creation has purpose. So it's interesting when you read just these uh, three verses. God creates light, and you know what God does? He always gives it a name. He always gives it a purpose. He creates something, and then He calls it day, the light, and the darkness He called night. There was evening, there was morning the very first day. And so if you keep going through the slides, which I'm not going to, you can show the next one. Uh, I'm not going to take you through all of it, but I would encourage you to study it. 
On the second day, what does he do? And he calls it sky. On the third day, he does something else. You know, he, uh, the water under the sky be gathered one place, let dry ground appear, and then he calls it land. He calls it seas. And so if you sort of skip through all the slides now, the reason I put it there in really small font is so you can't read it. But the point is, I did the study and I want to encourage you to do the study. What did God create? What purpose did He give it? And what did He call it? Okay, so far? Okay, so where does this bring us? It brings us to this conclusion. If all things were created with purpose and God called it into being with purpose, did He create you and I? Would we have purpose? Right? So you say to the person next to you, you have purpose. Now I want to distinguish between two kinds of purposes, okay? So to make it very simple, we'll call the first one a primary purpose. We'll call the second one, guess, secondary purpose. You guys are so smart. I really like these groups, yes. <laughs> they are so smart. Um, so the primary purpose, I would suggest to you, has three elements, three components, and you see this on the Venn diagram. So I'll start with the bottom two easy ones, and I'm not going to spend time on this. The great commandment, which is love God and love your neighbor, okay? And neighbor includes enemies, okay? So don't look at the person now, okay? <laughs> right. Um, great commission, you know this, and there are five passages where you can extrapolate the great commission, Okay? in each of the Gospels, and then Acts 1.8. So, the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. This applies to you and I, irrespective of whether you're paid or not paid to do ministry. It applies to you if you're a, whether you're a teacher or a doctor or a, or a toll booth collector or the person frying fries at a McDonald's part-time or full-time, you know, it, it does not matter. You and I have this primary purpose which we need to discharge, which is to love God, love our neighbor, the great commandment. Great commission would be make disciples of all nations. Amen. Right? Amen. Okay. So this two, these two, we always hear all the time in church, I think. What is less taught is something called the creation commandment. Okay? So what is the creation commandment? So we can go to the next slide. God blessed them, chapter 1, verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, you guys know the first part, be fruitful and multiply. Huh? Many of you practice that, uh, hopefully within the confines of marriage, but you know, and you should, okay? Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then, chapter 2, verse 15, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, and take care of it. So what is the creation commandment? You can go to the next slide. I want to suggest to you that there are four words, four functions. The first function would be to multiply. I won't unpack that. I think you get that already, okay? A lot of you, you guys go to weddings all the time, and you, you hear that, and uh, it's, 
Okay, I'm not going to say more. <laughs> the second function would be rule. Okay, and then there are, again, different words based on different translations. The NIV would use subdue. Uh, the NLP would speak about governing and reigning. The Amplified, subjugate, rule over. The ESV would be subdue, have dominion. The message would be take charge, be responsible. And you've got to read this alongside the New Testament, especially the example of Jesus, where he serves as a slave. Okay? So rule, and there's this whole thing called the dominion theology, but, and the pushback sometimes of dominion theology is it's too much about the power thing. How can we have dominion, control, power, subjugate, but I think we have to read this also, you know, alongside what it is to be a bond servant and a slave. And the Philippians too, and, and you know what C.S. has been preaching in the church uh, on, on humility and servanthood. So that's the rule side, okay? And, and I think for most of us, you know, we, we also wrestle with this quite a bit. In two, uh, chapter 2 verse 15, we see the word work and the word care. So the NIV would use work, ESV message would also use work, uh, the NLT would use the word ten, uh, amplified cultivate, King James would use the word dress, okay? And then care, care for it would be take care, NIV, NLT would be watch over, the amplified ESV, King James, the message would use the word keep. I have heard, okay, we wrestle with this a lot, okay? So in sort of my circles, we wrestle with this a lot. And, and I think also in the, in the marketplace ministry or with the different groups that I sometimes interact with related to you know, accelerators or incubators or entrepreneurship development, the question is, what's the difference between work and care? Okay, so some people would say, you know, work would be more entrepreneurial. That's work. And care would be more intrapreneurial. Or work would be more for-profit and care will be not for profit. So which is better or not, I'm not here to really argue about that. But I think here there's a, there seems to be these two distinctions. Work would be produce fruitfulness. Care would be tend or steward to what God has entrusted to us. Which is why, you know, when we read care, we should think creation care. That's one of the things we should think about. Why should we not pollute? Why should we not contaminate the sea? You know, so yeah, climate change, global warming, whether you believe it, don't believe it. The point is, we have a stewardship responsibility. Okay? So the how and what we do, we can debate. But the why we do it is really clear. Genesis 2.15. You get it? The poor, same thing. Is it, can you make money out of the poor? Some people do. I won't mention names, but <laughs> certain banks, uh, you know. <laughs> so is that work or is that care? Okay, so I'm not here to give the answer. I think I'm here today to stimulate you to think about it. And, you know, now you've got this whole entity created called social enterprises, which seeks to do both to work and to care, right? Social good. 
I've got friends in here that you, know, you can speak to that are thinking about these things. And the majority of you are, are still pretty young. So I really hope you will wrestle with, with this, um, the creation commandment. Because it should impact. You should infuse the kingdom into for-profit, not for-profit. You know, into, into leadership roles or responsibilities that you have in the rule and reign. Uh, the family, as you multiply, uh, whether biologically or by being a father figure and a mother figure, all right? So you need to wrestle with this. I won't unpack this further, but one can obviously look at the creation commandment, and then you can look at what the fall did to that. And then you move further to the Gospels, and then you ask yourself, if Genesis 3 corrupted the creation mandate, what did Jesus then restore? What did Jesus redeem? Okay? So, for example, I'll use examples from the marketplace, since the majority of you will probably enter the marketplace. Um, the work that you do, the business that you create, does it address real pain? So I'll just list out a few things. Does it bring real spiritual, economic, ecological impact? Does it dignify the worker? Is it radical? Radical would be, instead of paying your suppliers in 60 days, you pay them in 30. If you have to pay them in 30, you pay them in 20 days. That's radical. It's not towing the line. It's being radically different. Being gracious, generous, reasonable profit margins. You know, your work brings justice and mercy. You create genuinely useful products and services. You know, not merely alleviation, but also prevention. Okay, business is a mission. It's not just a mission strategy. Business is the mission sometimes. It serves God, not mammon. It's eternally focused. There's fruit that lasts. You encourage, allow, and you, know, you, you, you support rest. Um, maybe as an entrepreneur, you cap your lifestyle. You value your customers and staff. Your work, your continuous work is continuous worship. Hard work is not toil. You know, you demonstrate the gospel in the substance of the work. It's very hard to share the gospel at the workplace if you're really crappy at your job. <laughs> Isn't it, is that not true? Right? So, you've you got to deliver. You've got to stand out. You've got to be diligent. You have to work hard. And all that, okay? So as to earn the right to speak, to share. There should be no fear in, the work, in your workplace. Now, do you have fun? Um, a shalom experience, you know, and on and on and on. So you can read Isaiah 65, 17 to 25, do the study on that and take that into your workplace. So where are we? I establish, I hope, that everything God creates is purpose. We've got two kinds of purposes. The first primary would be the creation commandment, the great commandment, and the great commission. And now we come to this thing called the secondary purpose, which is a convergence of three elements. The first would be where God is working. Okay, so you can use, you know, different words to describe where God is working. Some people like to speak about the micro, meso, macro. Some like to use micro, uh, macro, mega, you know. So pick your term. 
But essentially, God is working locally and globally. So where is God working? That's the first. The second would be, what is the context that you find yourself in? What are the needs in that context? Is it poverty? Is it joblessness or unemployment? Is it abuse of women? Is it, you know, um, just gang violence or, or, or addictions or performance anxieties? You know, what, what, what are the needs? Access to medical care. You know, what are the needs in your context that you find yourself in? And then the third would be you, the unique you. You are wired in a unique way. There is no one that is like you. And so, you know, I've got an 18-page workbook that I can send to you if you're interested to help people extrapolate or derive their secondary purpose. But the me could be simplified to ABC. What are your abilities? What burden do you have? What critical incidents in your life has brought you to this current point where you stand? Okay? So what are your abilities? So you're a gifted musician, James, for example. What's your burden? That worship is seen as, worship is dull, okay? I'm just creating stuff. Yeah, I don't know, James, where are you? Sorry. <laughs> worship is super boring, you know, and people really cannot connect. Um, or they connect too much with the worship leader because he's a super performer. They don't connect with God. They're drawn to the name. They're drawn to the skill, the talent, the show, the lights, the smoke machine. And so that's his burden. People connect to the wrong thing, not to God. And so what is the critical incident? You know, I, I share a story um, that Chris Tomlin shared. Uh, Chris Tomlin went to this event, and when he went up on stage, he saw that only five people were there. So the question was, leave or not leave? And at that moment when he asked himself that question, he heard God said, who do you do this for? So, wham, bring those three together, A, B, C, and then maybe James says, yes, my purpose, my secondary purpose, you know, based on the context where this, the people of Stellenbosch worship lots of idols, I'm creating stuff up, yeah, I don't know if it's true. Uh, the people of Stellenbosch worship idols of all kinds, you know, degrees and cars and, and whether he's in corporate finance or in private equity or whatever, whatever, and, 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 and you know, God is moving the church towards worship in spirit and in truth. And then, voila, James or somebody has this purpose statement of doing what he does today. Okay? So, the three converging would help you identify your secondary purpose. So, if you need help in that, please let the church know. I'm sure we'll serve you in some way. What's the danger? Um the danger of not knowing your secondary purpose. Okay, let me illustrate it in the following. What does an Olympian who wins the gold, silver, or bronze, what does he do when he wins, when he crosses that finishing line? What is the first thing he does? Do you know? Hmm? Celebrate, yeah. Anyone else? Any Olympians here? <laughs> Besides Fani, <laughs> I don't think Fani is here this evening. Okay. With every time you look on the TV, the first thing an Olympian does, or any winner does, is they look to the stands, and who do they look for? 
They look for the people that matter the most to them. Right? Every time we succeed, we want to share with our closest, deepest, most significant relationships. Okay? So whatever you do right now, sport or otherwise, if you're driving toward that thing, whatever that thing might be, if you do reach it, who's going to be around you? That's an interesting question to ask. If even, or if at all, the thing you're driving toward is the right thing. I was on a mountain two weekends ago, and uh, that time we spent having a number of conversations, and one of those conversations had to do with, why do we do what we do? And this guy broke down crying when he realized he did what he did because he thought that was what his dad wanted. Um, and sadly, this situation is more common than needed. So an Olympian looks for the closest relationships at the finish line. Do you know what is the worst moment of an Olympian's life? Take a guess. What's the worst moment in his life? When he gets an injury, spoken like a true athlete, what else? <laughs> Anyone else? Huh? Being alone in the victory, some might say losing. Okay? The worst moment in an Olympian's life is the day after the event, when he's done. Because now what? Who am I when this thing I've been training four years for is gone? There is a partner of ours that works in uh, Europe this year during lockdown. So you remember the Olympics Games was deferred, right? Cancelled, then pushed back to 2021. This year, their ministry saw 1,000% increase in professional athletes wanting to study the Bible. Because what happened... Yeah. Praise God. What happens when the thing you're aiming for suddenly is taken away from you? What is left? Your secondary purpose. You need to know your secondary purpose. Okay? Your secondary purpose allows you to take individual action, which you can then scale into collective, transformative action. Um, some of you may have heard of this psychologist from Canada, I think, called Jordan Peterson. Uh, he was asked this question in, in, a, in an interview uh, in the context of climate change. And so the question posed to him was, does collective responsibility override individual responsibility? And his answer was, in the, again, in the context of climate change, no, because generally the way they avoid people, try to avoid personal things that are difficult to deal with, is by adopting a pseudo-moralistic stance on large-scale social issues so that they look good to their friends and their neighbours. What does it say? In a nutshell, don't talk about macro issues until you deal with your own personal issues. If you, if you really care about climate change, don't buy so many devices because of the rare earth metals that are used in your iPad, iPhone, laptop, TV, PlayStation 5, all right? So, so stop throwing stones at the people out there at 
this party or this government or that corporate or this extremely wealthy, high net worth individual, let's first look at ourselves and what we're going to do. So I'm using it as, a, as an analogy for why it's important that we don't just outsource the kingdom expansion, God's kingdom expansion through the siasis of this world. No, man. You and I have been called. Get it? Okay. So called to do what? Well, there is the individual responsibility, but this next picture essentially shows you 10 spheres or mountains or branches or, or whatever term you want to use of culture. All right? I'll read them out. Art, theater, uh, art and theater, business, communications or media, education, family, government, military, sports, technology. I didn't come up with the, the 10. They're historically seven, but I'm currently associated with a group of like super clever people that said, no, no, we need 10, okay? 10, <laughs> 10 mountains of culture, they call it. So I'm like, okay, great. Sport is there, so I'm happy. <laughs> uh, let's do a very quick survey. How many of you are presently or you're preparing yourself to be involved in arts and theatre? Put up your hand quickly. No, let's, let's do stand-up. Let's stand up. I want, it, I want us all to see. Arts and theatre, okay? Sit down. Okay, don't clap. We'll clap at the end. Don't clap now, otherwise it'll take too long. All right, who are involved in business? Up and down, just stand up. Great. Okay, sit down. No clapping, no clapping. All right. Communications, media, virgin media, any of that. Stand up. Great. A few. Uh, education. Should be a lot. Wonderful. And family, you're involved in some kind of family, all right? Family ministry, <laughs> starting a family, <laughs> okay, great. Uh, government, who are in government? Every level, municipality, yeah, yeah, federal, uh, not federal, what do you call it, national. Uh, military, anybody in the military here? Yeah? Too shy? Okay, don't worry. <laughs> Sports, great. Technology, wonderful. Okay, great, beautiful, beautiful. So, so here's the thing. I'm going to teach you, hopefully, uh, two words that will help you. The first word is clergy. Have you heard of the word clergy? All right, people who are ordained essentially. Huh? So you think priest, reverence, uh, domini, and all that. And then, have you heard of the word laity? Laity, L-A-I-T-Y. Basically, we, we usually say lay leaders, okay? Someone who is serving in church, who is not paid by the church. So the, we would call that person the lay leader. So more or less, you know, when it comes to ministry, you will have some traditions that speak about the clergy, and then the laity. So what do the professionals do? Like George and Yapi and Sears and the coaches and, and the intern pastors. Then what, do the, what does the laity do, which is all of us? Okay? So you find that um, there is this conversation depending on the denomination you're with. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. 
Let me read it. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. 1 Peter 2.9 And this is a verse, amongst others, which, which teaches the following doctrine or principle, which is the priesthood of all believers. So you and I are all priests. Okay? So even the Roman Catholic Church, the Orthodox Church, the... the, the um, uh, yeah, the, the Catholic and the Orthodox Church believe that all of us have certain responsibilities, whether or not you're clergy or laity. And those resp responsibilities include the preservation and the propagation of the gospel and the church. Okay? So they would speak about the clergy have certain responsibilities. In this church, I think we don't really hold to that so much, we probably lean more on the priesthood of all believers. All of us are ministers, okay? Meaning all of us can, we can, we can, we can conduct liturgy. Basically, you can stand up here and here and anywhere and you, you can lead the church in your house and here, okay? And you can dispense the sacraments, meaning you can baptize somebody, you can break bread. You don't need a pastor to be present. You don't need permission, that's where the distinction lies, okay? The clergy need to do those two things, liturgy and sacraments. The laity can do everything else. In this church, you can do everything, okay? But this whole clergy-laity divide is dangerous for those of you that sit on that side because you think the guy on this side will do everything. That's a no-no. <laughs> you get it? You have purpose, primary and secondary. There is no get-out-of-jail card. We're all called to be disciple-makers where, wherever God has called you to, has placed you in any of the ten. Maybe some of you, you straddle more than one. The guys that straddle more than one, you know, we hear of the Omengas and the, you know, Uncle Stephen Lungu, and they seem to straddle more than one. And those guys, we more or less call them, you know, fathers of a nation or nation builders, right? Because their heart is not for one aspect. It's really to see a whole nation discipled and transformed. And some of you have that calling and the gifting. And if you do, then go for it, okay? Uh, and make sure you, you surround yourself with people that check your ego. So we are all responsible. So I'm going to run through a couple of reflection questions with you now with no answers, Okay. Just things that I think about for myself, things that I'm forced to think about because smart guys like you and smart girls like you ask me these questions and I'm stuck. Okay? So I captured them for us to get stuck together because it's more fun to be <laughs> in community. That's what we hear in church. Okay, so how much of God's will does your secondary purpose include? Because sometimes it's your mom or dad's dream you live as their proxy for their non-success, right? Which is why some kids play rugby even though they don't want to because their dad wanted to play rugby and could never. So is it God's will? Is there God's will in it? Is, is your secondary purpose a facade for self-actualization and self-aggrandizement? So... Can your secondary purpose become an idol? 
Does God punish us for not aligning our secondary purpose? Like Jonah. Does everyone have a secondary purpose? What about the disabled? Do they need to know their purpose in order to live it? Is it possible to be accidentally purposeful? <laughs> what about those in survival mode? So we had a large group up front praying earlier. You know, if you're really in survival mode, how is it possible to live out your purpose? It, I, I, it's a good question. What's more important, certainty of secondary purpose or intimacy with God? Am I building my life around Christ or around my purpose? That's another hard one. Will you allow God to park your secondary purpose? If you say, no, no, I know you like to do this. I know you're great at being a worship leader and a musician, but now I just want you to go there and wash feet. Okay? For the next two years. In Kaimandi. Outside of your skill set. Do you allow God to do that or not? So Henry now and that did that. Does obligation, duty, trump secondary purpose? So what are obligations? Do you know them? Scary, huh? I love sharing this with you. Can living out your secondary purpose become competitive? So that guy's got one talent, this guy's got five talents, that guy's got ten talents, and now we compete. Is it even equal? Am I crafting my secondary purpose statement individually? What role should community have in helping me to identify my purpose? Why don't I want others to tell me? Or mirror to me? Do I fear accountability, solitude? I don't dare to, you know, some people are so afraid of being alone that they never have time to think or reflect or pray about their secondary purpose. Why are you so afraid of silence and solitude? Ask yourself. Do I fear failure? Do I fear rejection? Maybe to put it down could be limiting. Or to put it down means now I could fail because it's there. Better not to have it. At least I don't have something to aim for and therefore I'm not a failure. Where does that come from? Are you ready to accept the inevitability of pruning? So John 15, right? Or are you looking for life hacks to escape pruning? Life hacks is big now. Is that mindset just another face of pride that you can escape pruning because you're better? God will not let you suffer. You're special. Okay. Can secondary purpose change? Can secondary purpose be suspended? So you were doing this thing and now the pandemic hit and suddenly you stop doing it and suddenly you feel, oh my goodness, who am I? Or you get a disability or you lose your health. Can secondary purpose be truncated so you die young? Or someone you know dies young? Am I still waiting for a mystical or dramatic experience like Paul or that guy where the finger appeared on the wall? Okay. So, let me conclude. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Francis Schaeffer. But after we have done our best to communicate to a lost world, still we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives is the observable love of true Christians for true Christians. 
what he's saying is when all your arguments are done, when you've debated, you've used your intellect, you've gotten all the best books you could read and done the RZM course, the only apologetic that will win anyone over is when they see your love. One for another. That's the final apologetic. A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another and by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So here is how we will conclude the last slide, next steps. And maybe this is also a time for response, yes? Have you been obedient to your primary purpose in terms of the Great Commission, loving God, loving neighbors, in terms of the creation commandment of multiplying, ruling, working and caring? Do you know your secondary purpose? If you don't, maybe that's something you need to make a note of and make the effort to define it, to identify it, to arrive, even if it's a draft, to arrive at something. The third is, if you are in the marketplace or in university, wherever you are, in what way can you be much more intentional in saturating and redeeming the culture that you're in? And it's not salt or light, okay? It's salt and light, meaning infuse, implicit, latent, okay? But light would be visible, bright. People know it's tangible. When they're with you, they know you follow Jesus. Okay? In word and in deed. Not just deed. So salt and light. Perhaps some of you need to forgive. You need to forgive the person that made you feel guilty for being in the marketplace. Maybe you need to forgive the person that uh, got you into this current vocation or this current field of study. You don't want to be an actuarist, but you're Dad wants you to be an actuarist or a doctor or an engineer or fill in the blanks. And you hate what you do. And you struggle. So maybe there's a need for forgiveness. Maybe you never lived out your primary and secondary purpose and you need to forgive yourself because Jesus has forgiven you. But he also says, come, realign, realign. Follow me, follow me. Maybe something else. So let me invite you then to respond in the following. I'll pray and then I'll call you forward. And uh, if you could help and see us could help. If you need to ask for repentance related to your primary and secondary purpose, perhaps you can come to this side of the hall. And here you would say, I've disobeyed you. Okay? Um, I want to come before you and ask for your forgiveness. And perhaps on this side of the hall, there are those that you might need to forgive, people that have sowed um, guilt or shame or fear or judgment or condemnation, or there's an expectation that you need to provide. They put you through university. If you're black, the black tax. If you're not, you know, every time you see your folks or whoever it is, they remind you how much it costs for you to be here and what your responsibilities are. And you shouldn't be wasting time with this or that or that or that. 
going to church and doing all that stuff and going on missions, all that is expense. And you carry that. There's resentment. So there's a need for forgiveness or to deal with that tonight. Or to say, I don't know how I feel, but it certainly does not feel like I'm on the right track. And come and express it here. And you can add. Thank you for listening. Remember that our sermon audio and videos are also available on Shofar TV. Go to www.shofaronline.tv to download and share.